Welcome to the CEC report for the 17th of May 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is our Victoria State Chairman, Jeremy Beck. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we have massive intervention to reinflate housing bubble. Will it work? And from Belt and Road to the Bradfield Scheme, develop to save the economy. Now, before we get into, today, into today's show, though, uh, of course, yesterday and dominating the news today was the passing of former Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Um, so, you know, it is uh, certainly an era of history not coming to an end. I can't say it's the end of an era, actually, because Bob Hawke actually unleashed the era, which is now known as the post-1983 Liberal Economic Consensus, where both Liberal and Labor were committed to um, dismantling our economy really through the policies of financial reform, liberalisation, deregulation, the floating of the dollar. It wasn't seen or of course described that way as it was being implemented but looking back now from the perspective of the last 30 to 40 years it's quite clear that the productive sector has been thus dismantled. Um, so it was very lawful and interesting to see uh, not only Labor greats uh, honouring Bob Hawke, but also many of the Liberal greats and including the John Howards and the John Hewsons uh, who were equally committed to that kind of economic reform which has been a disaster. Well exactly, uh, look at John Howard, uh, he privatised the last bit of the Commonwealth Bank which Hawke and Keating started. Mm. So clearly uh, they didn't want any government role in banking yes. to direct the economy for the common good. They've worked in tandem on that and many other things. Um, so getting into our first item today, massive intervention to reinflate housing bubble, will it work? That of course is the question and you probably know our answer to it, it ain't going to work. Um, what is interesting though is that the powers that be both from within the financial sector and our regulators, the Reserve Bank, the government uh, have gone into an earnest effort to save the housing bubble, they would have liked for there to have been some outside intervention like there was during the global financial crisis which justified their efforts to intervene to give guarantees to bank lending and to triple the first homeowners grant and things like that. It didn't come along this time and they were forced to move anyway because they're in a desperate situation with this housing bubble coming down, they have to intervene. So there's a number of features of that intervention thus far and no doubt it's only the beginning. Um, in fact, the uh, committee report, the Senate Economics Legislation Committee, uh, which was recently engaged in an inquiry into our, the CC's written uh, legislation for banking separation is actually a part of this because the ruling that that committee made where they really didn't have a serious investigation at all into the issue of splitting up the banks so that the gambling of our banks can be separated away from the um, you know commercial banking activity to protect people's money um, that ruling which they said that the government should not implement this bill should not take it up uh, plays into a return to business as usual, uh, which we're seeing in spades since the findings of the Royal Commission. Um, you know, some people, you know, in the Labor Party, for instance, are saying, oh, we're committed to implementing the reforms 
of the Labor Party, as we spoke about, uh, sorry, of the Royal Commission, as we spoke about in depth on the show last week. But those reforms are things that the banks are happy with. They mm. don't even scrape the surface, essentially. Mm. So that committee report is number one, returning to business as usual. And I urge people also to have a look at our media release from yesterday, which we'll put up on the screen. Um, this talks about the submission made by former APRA uh, principal researcher and now whistleblower, Dr. Wilson Sai, uh, where he shows absolutely that uh, these findings of the Royal Commission, the committee findings, are dedicated to uh, returning to business as usual. And he really strips apart our regulatory system. He calls it fake regulation. Yeah, must read. Uh, you, you read it and you, you just couldn't believe it's true. You know, here, here we've got these regulators that the esteemed regulators, ASIC and APRA, and, and which he worked for both, and he just blows apart. He has intimate knowledge of how they worked, blows apart the complete inner workings and how they, they don't want to regulate. They don't want to look after the common good. They're really mm. captured by the banking interests. And he says this fake regulation is actually mm. worse than no regulation yeah. at all because at least if you've got no regulation, you know you're exposed. Mm. Um, you can take matters to deal with it. Now, secondly, you have, of course, the Coordinated Deposit Guarantee, which the government announced at their campaign launch last Sunday and which the Labor Party has backed, uh, whereby you, in certain circumstances, would only need to have a 5% deposit to get a home loan mm. and the government will actually guarantee the other 15% to bring it to the 20% required by banks to get a home loan. Mm. But this is essentially just coaxing people into greater risk, greater debt, greater mortgage insurance costs to cover riskier mortgages. It could even increase, increase the risk weighting for banks and therefore drive up interest rates and it amounts to a bailout, drawing more money into the housing bubble that otherwise would not be going in there. Mm. Thirdly, you have the Property Council of Australia, this is from news in the last couple of days, have held a, pri have held a private meeting with the Reserve Bank and with APRA, the Prudential Regulator, and the Australian reported that the property developers, so the Property Council is a bunch of property and housing developers, etc. They've called for, quote, banks to be given the headroom to start lending again. And reportedly Morrison used to work for the Property Council of Australia. Mm. So you certainly um, did. <laughs> these are all coordinated measures. Mm. Um, the other issue coming up is the court case that Westpac is in at the moment, uh, Jeremy. And this regards the use mm -hmm. of the HEM, which is the Household Expenditure measure. Mm -hmm. And the fear is that if the court were to rule in favour of Westpac, uh, allowing them to continue not to examine people's expenses accurately and just use this this um, sort of average figure, the HEM, mm -hmm. uh, that that would be again a return to the business as usual as it was even before the Royal Commission where they're not scrutinising mortgages at all. Mm. Well, if you look at this uh, HEM measure, it's pretty close to poverty. It's, it's a very very, uh, it, the measure really uh, allows the banks to continually pump more and more money into the property bubble and not look at the real cost of actual household mm. living. And then you've got the Henderson uh, poverty measure, which a lot of the banks are using and Denise Braley was actually looking at, uh, where they, they consider people literally living like bread and water, mm. bread and dripping in order to uh, pump more and more money into the bubble and keep it going, 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 relying on people assuming that the bubble will keep growing and growing. But when it doesn't, which it already has dropped now, you have a look at the mm. Sydney prices dropped by about 15%, Melbourne about over 10%. Now 
people are in negative equity, so that they can't keep doing that. And that's why you've got that property council and Scott Morrison who used to work for them trying to pump that up again. And this Westpac case, uh, look, it's going to be interesting to see which way it goes. But one way or the other, the bank, it's not in the bank's interest anyway to have a situation where the, the mortgagees aren't going to be able to pay back the debt anyway. Mm. So what's going to happen when, when uh, their, their property prices collapse, they're in negative equity, and they're at a point where they, they lose their jobs, the whole economy collapses. It's, it's a spiral where we're going to be in real trouble mm. unless we go through the real solutions. That's right, mm. which we'll talk about in mm. a moment. Now, just a couple of figures first, though. Housing approvals are at a near five-year low. The number of new houses being built dropped 15% this year and is expected to drop a further 11%. Um, in the rest of the year. This figures from the Housing Institute of Australia, which according to macro business floated the idea of this deposit guarantee. Mm. So you can see how these guys are all working in together to keep their little bubble and their um, uh, money spinner afloat at our expense. Uh, total mortgage lending is dropping sharply. Investor commitments are down 27% and owner occupied uh, investments down 16% over the year trends. UBS is warning that total loans could collapse by 30% and that the fall could become disorderly. <laughs> it could be much worse than that. Uh, and they're saying that GDP could fall sharply to 1.9%. Now, a couple of things to look out for are the interest-only loans that are expiring. And we'll put up a graph here, which you can see in 2019 is going to be uh, the big shock where a lot of these interest-only loans go to interest plus principal, which some people could be paying an extra you know, $900 a month, as we saw in one Perth case we discussed last week. WA, we have an article in this week's alert service, is leading the way in 90-day delinquencies. And uh, we also talked last week about one particular suburb in WA called Ellenbrook, which is Perth's highest risk suburb. And in this region, you've got nearly double the national average of people uh, with a who hold a mortgage two and a half times the national average spend over 30% of their income on the mortgage, 35% are in mortgage stress, 255 are at risk of default in the next 12 months, and local sources have informed us that one in five houses for sale in Ellenbrook are listed as mortgagee in possession, which means those homes have already been repossessed by the bank and they're trying to resell them. Um, negative equity has been a big factor here too as Ellenbrook's average house price is down 24% since 2014, again, ahead of all the averages. So this is an example of what they're calling blacklisted suburbs, um, where you, know, you may not be able to get a housing loan, but these are the areas that are gonna be ground zero. Now, of course, the solutions to that, as we've talked about, I mean, there's a, we've got a five point program. One part of that, of course, Jeremy, mm -hmm. is a debt moratorium, which is quite crucial mm -hmm. because we can freeze these debts for an interim period and renegoti renegotiate and reorganise them, but we've got mm -hmm. to keep people in their homes. But mm -hmm. what are the other elements of that five-point mm -hmm. program? The, the Glass-Steagall is really essential to separate out this risky banking, which is very, very attached to the, the, uh, the mortgage bubble, the, the derivatives and the banks, which will be separated out by the Glass-Steagall Act, which is essentially based on this very successful Glass-Steagall Act that was put in place in 1933 by the Roosevelt administration in the United States. Uh, it was unfortunately repealed in 1999 by Bill Clinton. But that separates out the essential banking, which we all need, from the very risky investment banking, which should not be protected by government. Uh, so that, that is critical. 
We need a national bank, like the old Commonwealth Bank, a government-run bank, to direct credit into the physical economy, into the productive economy, because if we don't have that, we're not going to be able to have that productive economy for people to have jobs to pay back their, their debts. Mm. Uh, when, when you get a, a spiral of, of debts and mortgage crises and negative equity, it's going to be a self-feeding spiral that we have to get out of and the national bank would allow that credit to be directed back into the physical economy. And I'll add to mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. infrastructure and international cooperation mm -hmm. are the other two points, but mm -hmm. we'll have a quick break and we'll come back to that after mm -hmm. this. Welcome back to the CEC report. From Belt and Road to the Bradfield Scheme, develop to save the economy. And we're going to come back and discuss the final elements of our uh, five-point program to save the nation, which are infrastructure and international cooperation on infrastructure and other matters. Um, on that first segment, there's much more information in this week's Australian Alert Service. And if you've never contacted us before, give us a call. We'll send you a complimentary copy. Uh, otherwise, get involved in some way. Give us a call to find out how you can. Now, um, we're going to talk a bit about the Belt and Road first and China. And I want to mention in prefacing it, that of course you've got uh, now the trade war between China and the United States at a critical juncture. Um, anything could happen. Sometimes the hurdles like this come up just before a breakthrough. Um, the whole deal was 90% done. But I want to mention the fact that in the background, because Trump you know, wants to have good relations with both China and Russia, and he's stated that many times, You've got the same neocons that brought you Russiagate that are now pushing, with John Bolton and others around him, Pompeo, etc., for a new Cold War with China. And in this alert service this week, you can read about the Committee on the Present Danger, China, which is a re revival of a Cold War apparatus. And they're now saying that China's a greater rival than Russia ever was, and we need to declare a Cold War. Um, and the reason China's a greater rival is, according to the State Department, uh, it's a non-Caucasian power. It's a really different civilization and a different ideology. So they're talking in terms of a clash of civilizations. This is insane. And we, Australians mm. have to ask ourselves, do we want to support this US push? Is this really what we want? Because for, you know, you might not like China, you might not like a lot of things about China, but one thing you've got to recognize is that China has succeeded economically. It's lifted 800 million people out of poverty. Its push for the Belt and Road is designed to uplift people in all kinds of backwards regions which would benefit and uplift the economies of the entire world at a time when we're facing mm. a new global financial crisis which China's consistently warned of. Um, so if Australia took even a couple of elements of China's economic approach such as implementing Glass-Steagall, national banking, support for industry, we could be actually building our country rather than selling it off, and then mm. we would have far less to complain about China or blame China for, mm. you know, for buying us up because we wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, well, it's our fault we privatise the assets. You know, we can't blame China for buying them up, you know, no, if, if exactly. we use that method. And, and you have a look internationally, uh, the, the method works. I mean, look at Ethiopia. I, I remember when I was in primary school, they, they had a famine that killed a million people, died of starvation. China's invested so much money into Ethiopia now They've got ports, they've got railways, they've got uh, hydroelectric schemes. Uh, Ethiopia is now the, the fastest growing country. GDP growth is around 10% every year. Mm. Uh, and 
lives are improving and, right. and it's proven that it's not a debt trap it's it's a, a real boom so on um the 25th to 27th of april uh the Chinese held their Belt and Road Forum for International Co Cooperation in Beijing. We didn't send any high-level representation. The state government in Victoria did and others went. But there were 37 world leaders, heads of the IMF and UN, 5,000 participants from 150 countries and 90 organisations. And they ran through the framework of six economic corridors, six connectivity routes with multiple countries involved, multiple ports. Within that framework are 35 economic corridors spanning Africa, Asia, Europe. There's 14 cooperation in initiatives and platforms and all of these corridors include the development and building of railways, ports, airports, energy systems, communications. Billions of dollars of new schemes were uh, agreed to at that forum. Of course, recently you've had Italy, the first G7 country to join followed by Luxembourg and Switzerland. Now, I want to give you a bit of a sense of some of the changing impressions of the Belt and Road as people are getting a better idea of it. So I'll put up some of these on the screen because, um, of course, there's been a lot of talk about China having ulterior motives for this. Well, this article, China's Belt and Road Partners Aren't Fools, is from Foreign Policy magazine, which questions that. You've got the 26 April New York Times, is China the world's loan shark? where China-Africa relations expert at John Hopkins University, Dr Deborah Bortigam, says that the university has tracked figures of Chinese loans to Africa and South America over 17 and 12 years respectively, and they show that the risk of Belt and Road are often overstated or mischaracterised. This article, America's False Narrative on China from Project Syndicate, is by Stephen Roach from... Uh, Yale and former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, he refutes allegations of Chinese intellectual property theft and currency manipulation and shows China's industrial policy is comparable to the US or Europe. New data on the debt trap question, this is from the Rhodium Group. Um, this does acknowledge a high number of debt renegotiations uh, in developing countries. However, it says asset seizures are rare and China does not use its leverage against smaller nations. And this was reported on in the Sydney Morning Herald in this article, data doesn't support Belt and Road debt trap claims. And here we have the ANU director, Jane Golly, uh, from the China in the World Centre, with the headline, China debt trap worries are overblown, CIW's Golly says. Uh, Malaysia, of course, renegotiated its rail link at a cut price, about 30% less that China agreed to. And you see the headline on that here. And even Handelsblatt, which been, has been opposed in Germany to the BRI, has said China has shown flexibility in how they've dealt with Malaysia and with Sri Lanka with the Hambantota port lease. Thailand has renegotiated, uh, well, has approved a long-delayed rail link. And then finally, as you've referenced with the case of Ethiopia, uh, uh, Jeremy, we have the headline, Belt and Road will politically stabilise Africa. And China also at the summit agreed to further open up its economy, allow more transparency and in foreign investment, pursue intellectual property protection, as it's also doing in the trade deals uh, with the US. It's giving up far more than the US is uh, and work more closely with its partners in improving the quality of Belt and Road financing. So that gives you a bit of a, a glimpse of what's going on there. And we have to take a quick break, unfortunately, but we'll be back to talk about the Australian side of this.
Welcome back to the CEC report where we're talking about the necessity urgently for economic development from the Belt and Road to the Bradfield. So we want to talk a bit about the Bradfield and other projects that could transform Australia. Um, now just firstly on China because we put out an article recently about the Chinese project absolutely transformative for um, water for China, the South North Water Project and we mm -hmm. described it as China's Bradfield scheme. Can you talk a bit about that, Jeremy? Sure. The, the South Water Project diverts water which comes from the Yangtze River in the south where they have much more rain. Similar to Australia, we have much more rain in north of Australia in the tropics, in the tropical region in China, they have much more rain. The north is much drier. So they've got three different routes. There's an eastern route, there's a central route and there's a western route. The the eastern route actually makes use of the Grand Canal, which was built many, many centuries ago, uh, and expands on that. Uh, the central route actually ends up going all the way under the Yellow River. They've, they've got a, a river under a river. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the western route is still in its planning phase. But in total, uh, it will divert enormous amounts of water where it is r really needed in the north. Uh, and it's going to open up a whole new agricultural areas uh, and allow cities to really blossom in the north. So uh, it's a, the biggest water diversion project in the world. That's the kind of inspiration we need to look and have here in Australia the Bradfield scheme. Well, we could be collaborating mm. with Ch the Chinese on the latest technologies, mm. etc. I mean, the Three Gorges Dam, which you recently mm. visited, I mean, the hydroelectric capacity, mm. power generation as well as water on that is stunning, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, hydroelectric uh, capacity uh, for Australia is, is enormous. And in, in China, they've grown enormously uh, over years, they know that coal can be dirty, so that they've gone to nuclear and they've gone to hydroelectric power. Mm -hmm. uh, here in Australia, you know, we, we've got so many potential spots all along the Great Dividing Range. Uh, you can pump the water up and then have it flow down the other side and send the water where it's needed. Mm. Uh, so for the Bradfield scheme in Australia, that would make use of the Tully, the Herbert and the Burdekin rivers in northern Queensland which would send the water over the Great Dividing Range into the dry interior and allow enormous areas which are just currently, it's fertile soil, but they're just not used for agriculture. Uh, it could uh, actually, I've got figures here. In 1984, there was a study that was done by four engineering firms at uh, the direction of the Queensland State Government. We had the uh, Guttridge, Haskins, uh, Davey, McIntyre and Associates, Munro and Johnson and Cameron McNamara. They found that it would cost in 1984 dollars $2.49 billion, but the actual increase in, in uh, revenue from the new agricultural production would be $2.02 billion hmm. per year. So clearly it would pay for itself in no time, yeah. many times over. That's right. Hmm. Um, and of course, the Bradfield scheme is one of those issues that always comes up prior hmm. to the election, which is tomorrow as of now. Hmm. Um, and there had been an article, a so-called fact check, in, mm. pr produced or published by the AB, ABC with RMIT, and they called the Bradfield scheme pie in the sky and supposedly presented this you know, thorough <laughs> fact check and debunking <laughs> the original scheme by Dr Bradfield and so forth, and mm. you wrote two articles on this. Yes. Um, can you say a bit about that, of what you exposed well, there? Well, uh, firstly, uh, John Bradfield, he's our greatest engineer. He designed the Sydney Harbour Bridge. He, designed the Story Bridge in Brisbane, uh, he designed uh, dams, he, 
He, he had great vision for this country, and here they are bagging our greatest engineer. Uh, the figures are there. I mean, the figures that I told you about in mm -hmm. terms of the, the billions of dollars it could generate, that was done by engineering firms. Uh, ABC used some ecologist professor, supposedly to make out that experts say that it can't happen. It's nonsense. And they ignored half of the evidence <laughs> that is available that you've pointed to yeah. here. And you can get a copy of that mm. article. Uh, you can access that on our website. Um, that's all we've got time for pretty much this week. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Lisa. And, of course, call in for a Australian Alert Service and join in again next week. Mm.